0: Let's go to First Samuel 25, shall we? I want to continue in our series on David. There's an awesome, awesome story, the story of David. We learn so much for our lives. These notes, by the way, are in the info desk if you want those. Feel free to go and get them now. I don't mind people moving if it's for a purpose. So if you haven't got those and you want them, go and grab them. The story of David's full of life lessons for us. In the story of David, we've found that God can take a nobody and make them into somebody. He can take you as you are and do amazing things with you. Do you believe that? God takes, he loves to take nobodies and turn them into somebody. God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things with them. He doesn't start with extraordinary people. He starts with ordinary people. If you're feeling very ordinary this morning, you're a perfect candidate for God to use. God loves doing extraordinary things with ordinary people. Third thing we've found out is God loves us no matter what we're like. You might think you're pretty horrible this morning. Well, God loves you. God loves us no matter what we are like. Fourth thing we've learned is anything is, anything is possible with God. Absolutely anything. Anything. You're sitting on some stuff this morning and you're saying, that's impossible. There is nothing impossible with God. Anything is possible. And the fifth thing we've looked at is that bad things happen to good people. You can be as good as you like, but because you're alive, there will be times when bad things happen. But they can be real growth times if we respond correctly. It's not what happens to us that matters. It's what we do with it. It's how we respond in it that determines our growth. And that's where we, were left, we left off last time. David in the wilderness. Bad things happening to a seemingly good person. Things happening that he did not earn, did not deserve, but they're happening. And so now he's running for his life. He spent years in the desert, by the way, not just weeks. We go through a hard time for a few weeks and we think we're hard done by. This went on for years. Just think of the hardest thing you've had to cope with in your life. Now multiply that by 10. It went on and on and on. There seemed to be no end to it. In fact, the only way it could end would be to kill Saul and he had two opportunities to do it and didn't do it. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We'll get onto that another time. But there was no end to his problem. It went on for a long time. And this incident that we're looking at this morning happens during this time. 1 Samuel 25, and I'm going to read through the whole chapter. Otherwise, you will miss stuff. So I want you to listen with me. I want you to read through with your eyes with me, not with your mouth, because you'll have a different version to me, and it'll just be a shambles. So let's listen carefully. Now, Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. Now, that in itself is significant. You've got to realize that's David's last hope gone. Samuel, apart from his family, is the only one who knows that David's going to be king. Samuel, who prophesied over David. Samuel, who anointed David. Samuel, who chose David. Samuel, who was on God's uh, D- David's side is gone David's got no more friends then David moved into the desert at Maon a certain man in Maon had had property there at Carmel was very wealthy he had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep which he was shearing in Carmel his name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail she was an intelligent and beautiful woman but her husband a Calebite was surly and mean in his dealings isn't that exciting She married the wrong one. While David was in the desert, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of yours was, theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they'll tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards my young men. Since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. Reasonable request, you'd think? When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name, and then they waited. Didn't have long to wait. Nabal answered, David's servants, who's this David. Who's the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and my water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. David said to his men, put on your swords. By the way, anyone got a King James version here this morning? I've always wanted to read this out of the King James Version. You can ask her later what she's going to read. I'm not going to tell you. Because David swears in here, and the King James Version is the only one that actually says it. The rest make it all nice and seemly. Anyway, let's carry on. It just gives me a thrill. My carnal nature. So David's men turned around and went back. When they arrived, they reported, he said, put on their swords. David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. Verse 14. One of the servants told Nabal's wife, Abigail, David sent messages from the desert to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us, and the whole time we were in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. All the time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do, because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man, no one can talk to him. Anyone like that here? Okay, let's move on. Abigail lost no time. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. As she came riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her, and she met them. David had just said, It's been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the desert so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David, be it ever more so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male, all who belong to him. There's the swear word. When Abigail saw David, Do you want me to tell you what it says? All right, I will. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one who pisseth against the wall. Whoa. It's strong language here. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey. When I was a teenager, I loved that. And bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, My Lord, let the blame be on me alone. Please let your servant speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. May my Lord pay no attention to that wicked man Nabal. He's just like his name. His name is fool and folly goes with him. But as for me, your servant, I didn't see the men my servant sent, my master sent. Now, since the Lord has kept you, my master, from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, may your enemies and all who intend to harm my master be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my master be given to the men who follow you. Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my master because he fights the Lord's battles. Let no wrongdoing be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master will be bound to secure Purely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he'll hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him leader over Israel, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord has brought my master success, remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who's kept me from harming you, if you'd not come quickly to me, not one male, there it is again, belonging to Nabal, would have been left alive by daybreak. Then David accepted from her hand what she brought him and said, Go home in peace. I've heard your words and granted your request. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the household, uh, house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk, so she told him nothing until daybreak. Then in the morning, when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things, and his heart failed him, and he became like a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He's kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. His servants went to Carmel and said to Abigail, David has sent us to you to take you to become his wife. She bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Here is your maidservant, ready to serve you and wash the feet of my master's servants. Abigail quickly got on her donkey, attended by her five maids, went with David's messengers, and became his wife. Interesting story. As we've read in the story, David has helped Nabal's men while they're in the wilderness. He's gone out of his way to look after people he didn't have to look after. At the time of sharing, David comes to Nabal and asks, which is a common request, that he would share some of the food he's got with the men who have been looking after him. That's what you did for people when they looked after you in those days. That was an Eastern tradition, an Eastern tradition thing to do, a, a thing of, 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 of being nice. You looked after those who looked after you. When there was a time of feasting, you shared your feast with them. Sharing food was a, was a, was a bonding together. But Nabal turns them away rudely. Nabal, true to his name, full, foolishly rejects them. And David reacts badly. I want you to understand, David's, David's reaction is wrong. So what happened to David? What happened to the man after God's own heart? What's going on here? Now, just one chapter earlier, David had come across Saul in a cave and had had the opportunity to kill him. And Saul had gone in and David's men were hiding in the cave and Saul comes in and and, and he's vulnerable before David. And David's men say, kill him. Now's your chance. Now we can be free. And he said, I will not touch God's anointed. God's anointing is on him. I will not touch him. And he lets Saul go. But the same David who did that to Saul now reacts like this to Nabal very soon afterwards. He reacts in a huge way when Nabal is rude to him. And he lost several things that day. The first thing he lost was his temper. That's it, he starts swearing. He loses all sense of his identity as God's anointed. Doesn't that happen when you get angry? Hmm? You sort of lose the plot a little bit. You say stuff that you wouldn't normally say. Your self-control disappears and suddenly you start acting in a way that is unbecoming. David begins to act. He's, he's, he's anointed king, but he begins to act in a very unkingly fashion. He also loses touch with God's heart. This isn't the God who loves him. This isn't how God responds to him and has responded to him. He's seeking revenge. He's lost touch with his God. And he's lost all perspective. All he can see is his hurt and his bitterness and his anger. All he can see is this fall. But David, who treated a crazy king as God's anointed, who saw Saul as a temple of the Holy Spirit, now only sees Nabal as an ugly piece of rubbish to get rid of. In fact, David was on the verge of behaving just the same way. Is Saul did. He's on the verge of becoming just like the one he's running from, trying to get rid of the one who threatened his pride. Because that's why Saul was chasing David. David threatened his pride. They sang songs about. Saul, Saul has slain his thousands, and they sang about David. David has slain tens of thousands. Saul was angry. His pride was hurt. They've, they've made him bigger than me. And Saul said, I've got to get rid of him. David was about to do the same thing. Nabal had damaged his pride. He'd done all of this for him in the wilderness, and now he was just turning his nose up at him and saying, who are you? David's pride was hurt, and his anger's rising. So why did he react like that? His pride was hurt, as we've just said. see, David expected to be given honor after all he had done. After all he had done on behalf of this person, he expected to be given honor. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says this. I want to read it to you. You got there before me. I'm doing it with my left hand. Okay, Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. As soon as pride gets involved, something goes wrong. David became captivated with himself. First thing. When we get captivated with ourselves, when we start getting bound up in ourselves, we're in trouble. When we become the focal point, we are in trouble. When we become center of our world, we are in trouble. David reacted like that because he was center at this particular time. He became captivated with himself and he was about to fall. Second thing, second reason why he reacted like that, his eyes were diverted from his destiny onto his circumstances. David was in the wilderness. He was running for his life. Things were difficult. And in the midst of that difficulty, this little thing happened with Nabal, and he lost sight for that moment of who he was. And it's so easy to do that. He lost sight of who he was. The worldview of the wilderness was beginning to affect him. The situation he was in was beginning to have an influence on him. And it's the same for us, isn't it? You go through a difficult time in your life, and... at some time during that period, you start to become infected by what you're going through. Do you know what I'm talking about here? You start to take on the image of what you're in. You might be in a a contentious situation and you start to become contentious. You start to bite back. You start to get critical. You start to take on the atmosphere of what you are living in. David was doing that. The wilderness was starting to work its way out in him. And at the conference we've just been to, um, Jess mentioned this last week, the, the, the speaker said this. He said, who we are is not where we are. Who we are is greater than where we are. Our problem in life is we become where we are. We allow where we are to overcome who we are. We forget who we are in Jesus when we're going through a hard time. We forget who we are when we're going through a difficulty, when we're in a wilderness time, and we start to take on the atmosphere of the where we are. It's so hard to stay positive when you're in a negative situation, isn't it? You know, you're in the the office, not in our church office, but you're in the office and say 30 people in the office and they're negative and they're moaning and they're going at people and they're criticizing. Isn't it hard to stay positive in that? You allow where you are to infect who you are. And yet as Christians, our who we are is meant to be overcoming where we are, if we would allow that. So David lost sight of his future as he got caught up in his present. He forgot he was king. And he started to act like a Nabal. Third thing he lost was he lost sight of God's heart. See, the man after God's own heart was now looking away from God and looking at his problem. And as a result, he lost sight of his God. You know there's no conversation with God in here. There's no God, what should I do? You, you often go through David's story and you find him saying, God, what shall I do? Shall I? Shall I fight them? Shall I do this? Shall I take this city? Shall I take them in? Or, or where shall I go? How shall I do it? But there's no discussion here. It's just reaction. It's just blind anger. There's just something within David taking over. He's beginning to respond out of the where he is, not out of the who he is. See, whenever we focus on our problems, we lose sight of our destiny. We lose sight of our God, and we're in trouble. David was in trouble, and he didn't know it. Interesting thing is, he didn't know it right through to almost the end of the story. He was just justified. I have earned my hissy fit. Nabal's going to get what's coming to him. I'm going to take his head off his shoulders, and everybody who's with him, I'm going to have my day in the sun. Don't we get like that when when the... uh, angry person inside starts to take over we just don't consider those around us anymore we don't think about their feelings we just want to we just want to say what we're going to say and we're going to say it no matter what because i've earned the right to say it david was in that he was about to act in a way that would come back to bite him once he was king he didn't know it but his chance of leading a united israel in the future hung on what he would do this day if he did the wrong thing, if he did the thing he wanted to do, if he took Nabal's head from his shoulders when he became king, that would come back to bite him. He would reap what he sowed. There would be a Nabal relative down the line who'd be out for his blood because that's the way things worked in those days. Things weren't looking good. David was on a one-way trip Failure, And that's what happens when we allow the unregenerate person within. And we all have it. I have it anyway. Let's just talk about me. We let that unregenerate person within have his day in the sun. And then Abigail comes to the rescue. This is the good part of the story. Her humility dealt with his pride. Look at how she talks to him. Verse 23. When Abakal saw David, she quickly got off her donkey, bowed down before him with her face to the ground. And then she, in the next few verses, takes the blame. She says, David, I am sorry for what we have done. David, forgive me. Humility. She hadn't done anything wrong. Nabar was the fool, not her. But her humility dealt with his pride. Her beauty confronted his ugliness. And verse 24 to 31, she spoke the truth into David's heart. She said, David, if you do, What you're planning on doing, it will come back to bite you. David, you are bigger than this. That's what she was saying. You are better than this. David, don't do it. Now, she put it in fancy words, but that's what she was saying. She said, David, you're about to act like my husband. Don't do it. She said, Nabar's a fool. Don't become a fool like him. So Abigail leads him back to life with a large, wise dose of the truth. Beautiful story. And what do we learn from it? There's a few things that we need to learn this morning from this story of David and Nabal. The first thing we learn is look out for the small things. It's not the big things that trip us up. It's the small things. It wasn't Saul that tripped up David. It wasn't Goliath that tripped up David. It wasn't the Philistine army that tripped up David. It wasn't even so much the wilderness that tripped up David. It was one fool. A small thing. Song of Solomon 2.15 says... Look out for the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's not the big animals that do the damage. It's the little ones you can't see. And it's often the small things that pull us down. We seem to do so well when there's a big challenge, and then someone irritates us and we fly. One little thing goes wrong and... Because our guard is Down. It's often the small areas that destroy lives, attitudes, little seemingly under-control sins that we just allowed to sneak out of the cupboard just for a day, small compromises in our lifestyle, little things, things that in the, in the, the picture of our lifetime are tiny, and yet they have the power to destroy us. It's the small things. Look out. For the small things, David, David's guard was down, and it, this little thing just got in there. Second thing we learn from the stories: we need people to speak truth into our lives. <laughs> Abigail confronted David before he made a mistake. In David's lifetime, there were several people who came to him just at the right moment and spoke. And rescued him from a fate worse than death. It wasn't God who spoke to him; God spoke through a person. In fact, a total stranger. Without Abigail, David was in big trouble. Do you know we need people around us like Abigail? You know, often we hide ourselves away, and I—I I don't need anybody. I'm okay. You're in trouble. You need people around you. You need the Abigails to come alongside you and say you're being a fool. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some. What he's saying there, the writer to the Hebrews, is you need one another. You might like each other, but you need one another. You might like how people talk, but you need them. You might not like people around you, but you need people around you. You are not an island. You were not born to be an island. You were not created to be an island. You're created to be a family. We need Abigail's. Wise people make sure they're in contact with people like that. Notice David quickly married her. (laughs) He didn't waste any time. I've got to have this woman. She, she, she talks to me. I've got to have her. Now, he should have stopped there, by the way. But never mind. That's another story. One Abigail was enough for him. Abigail was more than a pretty face. She was a woman of value. People we need, people of value in our lives. And the third thing we learn is we need the openness and humility to listen when people talk to us. Abigail was insignificant. She wasn't anointed to be king. She had a fall of a husband. And she was just a nobody. Yet David listened to her and respected her point of view. David was open to the truth. Even in the midst of his anger and his failure, He was open to listen to someone who spoke the truth. And this is often our failing. Often there are people who speak to us, but we're not open enough to listen. I know when uh, this happens in our home, when Annette will say to me something that is wise, but I'm in that state of mind where I don't want to hear wisdom. Anyone with me? I just don't want to hear wisdom. I'm just enjoying my reaction right now. And she, like Abigail, will say to me, you're acting like Nabal. And, and, and I don't want to hear that, but if I'm wise, I'll listen. And what I'll generally say is, I don't really like what you're saying, but I hear you. You're right. You see, a wise person listens and acts when they hear the truth. And do you know where you get an open heart from? You practice. You practice listening. You practice with your wife, men. You practice with your husbands, women. You practice with people around you, those of you who are not married. Practice listening. Practice responding when you hear the truth. Practice letting your pride down and the truth in. Because if you don't practice when you need it, you're going to respond how you always respond. Don't tell me. Who are you to talk to me like that? Practice responding to the truth. A soft and an open heart is developed through practice. It's not a gift of God. You were not born with a soft and willing heart. You were born with a rebellious heart that doesn't want to be told what to do. We practice, we learn to submit to one another. It's something we have to do. It's not something God can do for us. He did the greatest thing for us by dying, sending his son to die on the cross for us, but we need to practice listening. To other people. Work on it now. Start listening to your wife, husband. Start listening to your husband, wives. Start listening to your kids, parents. Start listening to your parents, kids. Start listening to other people. Start allowing other people to speak to you. Everybody isn't stupid. When I was a teenager, I thought all adults were stupid. As I got older, I found out they became wiser. But you know what? Not everybody's stupid. There is there is truth coming out of people we need to listen to. Start practicing. Start responding to the Holy Spirit's promptings in your heart. Start being soft before God. And the fourth thing we learn from this story is we mustn't be afraid to speak the truth. Oh, what if they get offended? Ephesians 4, 14 to 16, talks about speaking the truth in love. We grow up into maturity. Speaking the truth in love. Now, no one's going to speak the truth to you if you won't listen to the truth. If you're not an open person, no one's going to speak the truth to you because they're wasting their time and they know it. But we mustn't be afraid to speak the truth. John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, you know there's two kinds of truth, don't you? There's our truth, and there's the truth. Our truth is what we think about something. The truth is what God thinks about something. Now, no one wants to hear your truth, You're not interested in someone else's truth, and I'm not interested in your truth. I'm interested in God's truth. I'm interested in what God says. Abigail told David what God said, not what she thought. We used to to have a guy in our church, years, not here, a long, long time ago. He said, I'm the watchdog of the assembly. And he'd go around telling people the truth. Yeah, pain in the neck. No one wants that. That's his truth. I don't, people don't want to hear your truth. They don't want to hear your opinion about them, about what they're doing, where they're going, who they're marrying, what they're eating, what car they're driving, where, what they're saying. That's your truth. That's your opinion. Keep it to yourself. But God's truth, we need to speak in love. Abigail wasn't being a busybody. She was responding to the truth and bravely speaking it out. David could have cut her head off. He was quite prepared. He was in a cutting head off mood. How many know you don't talk to people when they're in a cutting head off mood? All right, You avoid them, don't you? But she was brave. She came to David in a cutting head off mood and she spoke the truth to him because she knew if she didn't, he was in trouble. She was caring about him The only truth has the power to set people free. Foolishness needs to be challenged, and it challenges my foolishness quite often. We need people like Abigail, brave brave enough to speak to us. Husbands, you need your wives to be brave enough. You need to let them to speak to you. Wives, your husbands, so on. We need people who will lovingly and wisely speak the truth into our lives. David was about to make a huge mistake. One that he would regret forever. He was about to do something that would stop him ever ruling effectively. And there are times in our lives we do the same. Out of our reaction to our experience, to our circumstances, to the wilderness time we're in, whatever, out of our reactions, something wells up within us that's not God. We all have that capacity. There are times when I, the, the monster rises up and you feel it coming and you actually enjoy it. But if you're sensible enough, you know, you let that monster live, you're in trouble. Your marriage is in trouble. I've told you this before. But there, was, I, there was one day where Annette and I were having an argument and I was just planning how I was going to leave her, you know. How pathetic. How pathetic. She was sitting down there. I said, I can't even remember what it's about. And she said, I can. She still remembers what it was about. I can't. But it was pathetic. Totally pathetic. But I had allowed that circumstance to uh, to overtake me, and the monster was coming out, and I was doing the dishes, and I was planning what I was going to do, how I was going to leave her, where I was going to live, all this sort of stupid, stupid stuff. And God spoke to me and said, You're the man, say you're sorry. I'm not going to say I'm sorry. She's the one who's wrong. You know, that sort of comes out. God said, you're the man, say you're sorry. Then you start to get whiny. He said it a third time, you're the man, say you're sorry but I'm not. Say it anyway. Pretend. Mm. All right. Sorry. But the sorry turned into I'm really sorry. You see, if we're not open to the truth when it's spoken to us, we can make a mistake that will affect us forever. Because I tell you, I was on a course that day which was not good over a stupid, pathetic, measly, useless thing that I can't even remember what it was. And yet I allowed one thing to begin to overpower what God was trying to build in our lives. And all it took was one word, that word that is so hard to say. You almost need to be delivered to get it out. You manifest. Sorry! Most powerful word in the human language. you said it lately? Some of you need to. See, the man who repeatedly spared the demonically motivated Saul was about to remove a fool from the face of the earth. He got caught up in his own pride, his own self-importance. He forgot who he was, who he was, who he was about to become, and he forgot who was God was, and only the intervention of a brave, wise woman saved him no swords no armies just a wise word of truth it's so easy to let the little things trip us up isn't it that little word that we just want to say that little attitude we want to let out that little temper tantrum we just want to have that little hissy fit we want to throw that little one liner ah oh, They've earned it, they're gonna get it. You know and you you, you practice it at night time. And you refine it and you choose the words carefully. You go into the dictionary to find out better ones, and then you let it rip Gotcha. But you just got yourself. And you know what our greatest protection is? It's people people who love us enough to say you're being an idiot. Pull your head in. (laughs) Peter Tate, you're just being a fool. Grow up. We all need that from time to time but not our truth, the truth. You know, All of this goes on in our lives because we forget who we are. We get wrapped up, caught up in where we are, and we forget who we are. We forget that we're children of the King, that Jesus died for us. He paid the ultimate price to set us free. He died for you And I, We are children of the king. We are royalty. We are not Nabals. And I want to read you again what I read. Most of you missed it because you weren't here. You need to be here at 10 o'clock, people. That's when the best part of the service is. We have someone stand up and share what God has laid on their hearts for the service as we're going into it. It's really important to hear it because you don't know where we're going. You're sort of taken along for the ride, but you really need to know where we're going. But I read this as we started. Several things that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. Hope I can read it this time. We have a life that cannot be forfeited, a relationship that cannot be lost a righteousness that cannot be tarnished, an acceptance that cannot be questioned, a judgment that can never be repeated, a life that can never be clouded, and a position that can never be invalidated. But there's more. You know that story? There's more. But in addition to this, we have a standing that can never be disputed. We have a justification that can never be reversed. We have a seal that can never be violated. We have an inheritance that can never be alienated. We have a wealth that can never be depleted. We have a resource that can never be diminished. We have a bank that can never be closed. We have a possession that can never be measured. We have a portion that can never be denied. We have a peace that can never be destroyed. We have a joy that can never be surpassed. We have a love that can never be abated. We have a grace that can never be arrested. We have a strength that can never be weakened. But there's more. We have a power that can never be exhausted. We have a salvation that can never be annulled. We have a forgiveness that can never be rescinded. We have a deliverance that can never be thwarted. We have a preservation that can never be hindered. We have an assurance that can never be dishonored. We have a new nature that can never be changed. But there's more. We have a fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, that can never be destroyed. We have a hunger that can never be unsatisfied. We have an approach and access to God that can never be blocked. We have a blessing that can never be interrupted. We have an attraction, Christ, that can never be surpassed. We have a good that can never be adulterated. We have a comfort that can never be absent. But there's more. We have a Bible that can never be destroyed. We have an intercessor who can never be disqualified. We have a victor who can never be vanquished. We have a resurrection that can never be prevented. We have a destiny that can never be changed. We have a hope that can never be disappointed. We have a glory that can never be dimmed. And we would lose all that for our day in the sun. How foolish. God has done so much for us. And it's free. It can't be earned, can't be paid for, can't be bought, can't be traded for. It's free. We just have to accept it in Jesus' name.